Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Beware. Swamper Dusty Johnson denies that the communists stole the election from President Trump. That's an ad from a pro-Trump PAC called Drain the D.C. Swamp that ran against South Dakota Congressman Dusty Johnson during his Republican primary campaign, which was decided on Tuesday. You remember that ad? Oh, do I ever. I mean, it was only, you know, $300,000 put behind that ad. Just like Trump, the PAC didn't like that Representative Dusty Johnson certified the 2020 election results. Dusty Johnson says Biden won and attended Biden's inauguration. And on top of that, they didn't like that he wanted an independent investigation of the January 6th riot. Dusty Johnson voted to investigate President Trump and patriotic Americans who attended the January 6th Trump rally. As the ad makes clear, Johnson had made Trump's hit list. There are a bunch of ways to get on it. Don't believe in election fraud? You're on the list. Voted for impeachment? Obviously, you're on the list. When the primary season started this year, being on the list seemed like a sure way to lose your seat in Congress. But a lot of Republicans are learning how to survive the former president's wrath. Tuesday was a primary day in seven states, and it was a test of a certain subset of House members on the hit list. 35 House Republicans voted for the January 6th commission, and of those, five of them had a primary on June 7th. And all five of them survived, including Dusty Johnson. And he won by a lot. The reason I get elected and with primary margins of 20 points and 50 points and 20 points, is because I am not some sort of alien to the South Dakota electorate who's got to convince them that they have to accept my views. He faced State Representative Taffy Howard, who, like her allies in the Drain the D.C. Swamp PAC, Drain the D.C. Swamp PAC is responsible for this advertising, tried to cast Johnson as an enemy of Donald Trump, because Trump is enormously popular in South Dakota. Their views are very similar to mine, and I just need to make sure that they understand that, even if the attestators are lying to them. Today, how to buck Trump and live to tell the tale. Uh, how does Dusty Johnson exist uh, in the era uh, of, of Trumpism? I'm Ryan Lizza. This is Playbook Deep Dive. It's not actually votes that make for a challenging primary. It's whether or not a rich guy decides he doesn't like you. And so there's one rich guy named Tatnell Hillman in Colorado. He has given millions to drain the D.C. swamp. For whatever reason, he and drain the D.C. swamp decided that they uh, liked my opponent better than they liked me. And so they put a lot of money into the race. Taffy Howard. And, yeah, and it's not actually... Like, again, it, 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 the votes have surprisingly little to do with that. I mean, I'm A-plus rated by the NRA. They endorsed me rather than Taffy in this race, and yet a preponderance of their mail attacked me as being uh, weak on the Second Amendment. So that these guys the actually, yeah. 
yeah, these guys actually don't care about uh, the truth or about the actual voting record. They told voters that I had voted for Nancy Pelosi's Competes Act. It's provably and demonstrably false, but that doesn't matter. We're not dealing with, uh, you know, we're not dealing with people who really care about facts as much as I do. There was a point in the race, though, that one of the outside groups said, uh, told The New York Times that they their polling showed it closer to a 50-50 race and you got some help from some other folks. Did it, uh, did it get that close? Oh, I don't know uh, how close it got. We certainly never had any polling that showed it 50-50. We don't do a lot of polling. Polling's pretty expensive. And, you know, we knew that this was like, a, that we were 50 points ahead a couple months ago. Uh, my favorables uh, were very good in South Dakota. I'd won my previous primary 80-20 and my previous general 80-20. So South Dakotans know me. I mean, they are, uh, they are, listen, they're upset. Inflation's a mess. The border's a mess. They don't like D.C. right now. So the environment was pretty good uh, for any incumbent to have some bark taken off their tree. And that's clearly what happened. I mean, we didn't win by 50. Uh, we would have won by 50, but for this outside money. But uh w- I mean, it was our polling never showed it a 50-50 race, Ryan, but clearly we knew that uh, with that kind of money is going to have an impact. So I'm not there in South Dakota now, but we, we've been in Idaho on this show and uh, looking at the governor's race and the governor there had a, had a challenge from a Trump-endorsed uh, candidate in a, in a primary, beat her. Uh, then we were in Wyoming and took a look at what's going on with the with the, with the Cheney race and the dynamic there. Um, and feel like we're just sort of moving east here now. Now in South Dakota, looking at at your race, and one of the things I you know I'm always looking for and trying to understand is what is the secret to winning in a Republican primary these days when you're on the other side of Donald Trump, uh, and you were. But uh, what were the what were the key ingredients? And I wonder if you could maybe since you're right next door and you know her and have supported her. What you what advice you might have for someone like uh, Liz Cheney uh, in, in her primary? Well, and just to push back on the idea, you know that that Trump and I are Trump and I aren't on the same team. Listen, I don't agree with everybody on anything, but you know, do Donald Trump and I agree on the need to secure the border? Yes. Do he and I agree on uh, you know things like taxation and regulation and uh, the bad economic policies of the Biden administration? Yes. I mean, let's be clear. Donald Trump and I agree on an overwhelmingly large number of things related to policy. So I think if you're going to weigh these things, he and I are on the same team. It's the Republican policy team. Uh, that, of course, he and I have disagreed on, on some things, but that's true for everybody, right? Liz and I have disagreed on uh, a bunch of things as well. And I'm not going to give you know Liz any advice because, frankly, she's been in this, um, you know, she's been in the D.C. world for a long time. Uh, I've been around for three and a half years. Uh, she's clearly more of an expert. And, you know, she's a, a big gal who's certainly capable of running her own race. I mean, one of the things in Idaho that the the, the people around the governor there r- repeatedly told me was, we're really glad Trump didn't come to the state and campaign for our opponent. So part of their race was, don't poke the bear, you know, don't get Trump um, interested in the Idaho gubernatorial primary in any way, even though he, he endorsed the opponent. Did you ever tussle even from afar with uh, with Trump or some of his prominent folks targeting the race? And was 
keeping a lower profile from that kind of like nationalization of the race an important factor? Well, I, we certainly haven't changed anything we've done in the last year compared to the first two and a half or three years I had. I mean, I, I feel like I take the votes I think are right. You know, I'm not, I'm not, a, I mean, I've never been the cable news guy. I mean, we love, I mean, when somebody invites us to go on, we're happy to do it. But I'm just, I mean, I'm a, I'm a workhorse and not a show horse. So we did not set you out. You should to do have it a, more. You've got a lot of great stories to tell. <laughs> well, uh, thank you. I also don't know how much it really serves the governance process. Right. I mean, my thought is, you know, let's pass good legislation and going on in cable news and sort of screaming about the time of day is not all that helpful. So we did not try to keep a lower national profile in this race. We've just kind of done the things we've always done, which is take the votes that allow me to sleep at night and that I think are data driven and constitutionally consistent and actually work to get legislation passed. And to the extent that anybody else across the country is paying attention to this race, there's just nothing I can do about that. I mean, there is just, if Drain the D.C. Swamp wants to come in, they're going to come in. No fruit basket or no sweetly written note, you know, uh, is, is going to change that. I mean, I got to run my race. I got to take it to South Dakotans. Uh, they know me. Uh, they trust me. And I feel pretty good about uh, my likelihood of getting uh, hired in November for another two years, uh, regardless of what the outsiders say. I guess maybe one difference I see with the race, the primary that Cheney is 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 running, and sort of her, what she says publicly, and her commitment to the January sixth committee, she really does believe that what happened on January sixth is something that is definitional, definitional in Republican politics and in America. Some caveats it almost invites the idea that her primary is a big, important national test of what direction um, the Republican Party is going to go in. I feel like maybe you—that's um, not what you wanted in your race, or, or at least when I talk to you today, um, you're very—you're able to say, "Hey, I agree with Donald Trump on these things," and supporters in South Dakota who like Trump um, should recognize that um, and that you don't necessarily see or didn't see your primary or your sort of political project in general as someone who has is strongly agrees with Liz Cheney on, on some of the some of this stuff but that you don't see your political project as there's a war within the Republican Party and I've got to keep fighting it and my side's uh, got to win got to win because Trumpism is bad for the party. It led to January 6th. It's problematic for our democracy. And maybe it's just a matter of emphasis, but do you see what I'm getting at with that question? Well, I mean, I would broaden your question a little bit. And I know there's a lot of narrative that focuses on the Republican Party generally, but I think- You guys are pretty interesting these days, I have to say. I mean, it is, but across the political spectrum, I think we see these battles about to yeah. what extent will we allow the rule of law and principles and, frankly, uh, uh, pragmatic and practical progress, how, to what extent will we allow those to continue to power this country? Those have largely been the ingredients of, of powering uh, America, right? I mean, America has generally been viewed abroad as a very practical country. And uh, there are clearly the ascendant voices on the left are not about practicality. 
I mean, you see, I mean, there have been a lot of Democrat, uh, you know, Joe Manchin is hated by the left. Carolyn Bordeaux lost her primary. Uh, Henry Cuellar was very close to losing his primary. Kurt Schrader lost his primary. These are people you can do business with. You can sit down and cut a deal with them. And that sort of, their willingness to work with Republicans has been rejected by many in the Democrat primary electorate. And so is, is that a passion of mine to try to make sure that there is a space for actual problem solving? That is a passion. I have every bit as much of a passion behind that as any of the other members of Congress we've talked about. I think the question where I tactically probably deviate is I want to actually pull levers and push buttons that work. I mean, Liz was for impeachment. I rejected impeachment. Anybody who said that impeachment is something we have to do to heal this country, they were wrong. Donald Trump was impeached. Does anybody actually think that that has made America more functional? Does anybody actually think that that impeachment vote has quieted the more extreme voices on the far right, on the far left? That impeachment vote made things worse. And what would have been the practical impact of impeaching a guy, or rather convicting a guy, who was already out of office? And so my point is, listen, I do care greatly about uh, the functionality and the health of American democracy. But I am not going to howl at the moon uh, or scream on cable television like so many on the right or the left if it's not actually going to make something better. Right. The, the the votes that people point to, of course, are about the January 6th commission and, you know, keeping Liz Cheney as conference chair, those sort of big national votes that we in the political press tend to focus on because they've become such a, a barometer of which wing of the party you're on. And, and, and uh, with the with the caveats that you mentioned that not all voters associate themselves with those uh, with those wings. But what were you thinking as you were watching the Trump claims um, explode and get increasingly more um, outlandish, but also um, popular on, on the right from the pre-election day period to the run-up to, to January 6th. Were you paying close attention to that or kind of dismissing it as, oh, just silly talk? Like, Do you remember sort of your frame of mind as, as that was all uh, unfolding? I evaluated these claims as they were leveled. I mean, I dismissed nothing out of hand. I mean, we had a couple of people on our staff who a big part of their job during November, December, and even in the two years since has been to, when I hear a claim, uh, whether it's in conservative media, uh, alternative media, or in, in the mainstream press, uh, okay, hey, what what do we think about these claims? What what about this? What about this uh, geolocation data? Right? How how valid is this? Uh, let's go do some fact checking. I mean, I didn't take anybody's word for it. Hmm. I didn't take the word of the New York Times, and I didn't take the uh, the word of uh, One America News. Right? Let's try to use some primary sources to sort this stuff out, and but also use some logic. Right? I mean, the reality is that every single U.S. attorney. And every single U.S. marshal in each of these states, those are the top law enforcement officials, federal law enforcement officials, they were appointed by Donald Trump. They lost their jobs when he lost his. Their interests were well aligned with his. And more to the point, 
In all of those cases, these were career, I mean, these were people, yes, they were political appointees, but they were also people who were very experienced in prosecution and law enforcement and who uh, would have wanted to have found uh, malfeasance to the extent it existed. So how many of these U.S. Marshals arrested and how many of these U.S. attorneys prosecuted folks, again, Donald Trump appointees, how many of them found evidence of this sort of widespread fraud uh, in, in the months after the November election? The answer to that is zero. None of them did. Now, maybe they're all on the take, but we don't have any evidence of that. Yeah. Well, I think there are some people who, you know, they're skeptical from the beginning. They read about it um, in some sources they trust, and they're like, "All right, this is all BS." I, I, it just sounds like you went a little bit beyond that to make to make sure that you were satisfied um, personally with the evidence of any claims that were brought to your your, your attention. And I don't I don't think every member of uh, Congress has done that. <laughs> well, I would feel pretty thin. I would have felt a little ridiculous going to Aberdeen, South Dakota in a room with 100 people and telling them, oh, hey, listen, the New York Times told me everything was fine. That was enough for me. Right. I mean, at some right. point, I need to be able to, when they've got a question, I need to be able to say, well, okay, I looked into that. And here is, uh, you know, actually, I talked to the guy. Okay, I talked to, you know, somebody on the ground in Arizona. This is, uh, this is the actual fact set. If I can't stand and deliver that kind of nuance and detail for the people of South Dakota, they are simply not going to buy what I'm selling. Just to fast forward for a second, then I want to come back to the run-up to January 6th. How often in your primary campaign this year would you be answering a question from a constituent about uh, tw the 2020 election rather than some other issue? Oh, there are. I mean, the, the issues that come up daily would have been inflation and the border. The conversations that would have come up weekly would have absolutely included the 2020 election. And so some of the stuff that you were just telling me and explaining, that that was a lot of a lot of what was happening during your recent primary is that kind of back and forth with voters and, and trying to explain like, hey, I've looked into it. Here's why this isn't true. Yeah. And of course, that discussion, it's interesting because there are two. I mean, you can have a conversation about what happened, but at the same time, I'm also trying to tell them, listen, the Constitution and the Electoral Count Act does not provide me with the power to serve as a super judge with a super veto over the election results of the 50 states. And then I think there's the third question, which is, and would you even want that? You know, yeah. I, I'm sorry, you know, friend from Falkton, would you actually want Nancy Pelosi's house to have a super veto over the electoral results of South Dakota? Because I don't know about you, but I think Washington, D.C. is the most dysfunctional town in America and I trust the 3,500 counties and their county auditors and the 50 states and their secretary. I, I trust them collectively to be more resilient to um, cybersecurity attacks and uh, other fraudulent attempts to steal an election than I do one Speaker of the House. Uh, in primary season in 2022, where you stood on on how to deal with the aftermath of January 6th and really a, a kind of stand-in for your view of Donald Trump. When did you realize that, um, you know, you might 
even if the at the end of the day you won won by a big margin, you were going to have a fight on your hands. Well, I don't think any of those votes got me a primary challenger. The reality is, uh, Christian Noem well, gave your gave your primary challenger uh, something to work with. Well. Christian Noem had a primary challenger. John Thune had a primary challenger. I mean, I'm going to have, I mean, but these primary challenges are just now sort of baked in as inevitable. Uh, that's the era we're in. I mean, yeah. I don't, I don't draw the lines, but you probably know better than I do, Ryan, that out of 435 members of the house, there are only 40 who now are estimated in any given cycle to have a challenging general. That means 90% of us are focused on the primary. Yeah. And that's where all of the energy and all of the money flows and so, I mean, I always knew I was going to have a primary challenger. I think the big X factor, but yeah. it's not any particular, I mean, they just also lied about my record. I just want to know, since you've won, has, have you gotten any calls from Republicans who, who are in a, a primary of a similar dynamic who have said, I watched a race, you know, you survive, you, you know, you took some tough votes on uh, on the larger issues around Trump and you survived to tell the tale. Uh, uh, do you want to give any last piece of advice to those folks on this show? H- how do you take those votes and survive? I don't think there's any secret to it. There are going to be times those votes cause you political discomfort. Uh, don't run away from them, but don't run away from the electorate either. The American people, or at the very least the South Dakota people, are really smart. If you're willing to have a conversation with them, uh, you're going to win way more often than you lose. I, I think that's a very insightful line. Don't run away from the electorate. To me, that's what you're saying is you have to acknowledge the, I mean, if to simplify it, tell me if I'm wrong, what it, what it sounds like you're saying is you have to acknowledge that your electorate likes Donald Trump and you've got to figure out a way to deal with that, even if you might not love everything about him personally. Well, but I mean- they like Donald Trump, but they also like Dusty Johnson. And so it really is not, I know that kind of the, the theme of our conversation has been about kind of how does, uh, how does Dusty Johnson exist uh, in the era uh, of, of Trumpism? But to me, I have yes, never- that is vi- true. You're right. <laughs> I, I have never viewed it like that. I wonder if you could just sort of set up as a, as a lifelong Republican sort of coming up in the, in the, in the, through the party ranks in South Dakota- how you processed those early years of like, you know, 2015 to, to 18, um, of the, of the Trump years and sort of how things changed for you. Um, what should, could you give us sort of, a um, a rundown of, of, of that transition period? So, but, but this question, this question you're asking about, oh gosh, what's it like Dusty sort of while having being a longtime uh, Republican, activist, uh, leader, and then having to, this new era of, of Trumpian Republican politics. What, what is that like? And I would say that was a central question in my primary. It wasn't like uh, my primary was a coronation. We had uh, Trump's state campaign director, uh, Neil Tapio, a state senator who had run. And then we had our uh, secretary of state, Chantel Krebs, who had not so had a all, partic- This was all litigated in that primary. It was all litigated. And, yeah. and so I think... Ultimately, uh, South Dakotans chose a Reagan conservative, me. I got about half the vote. And then the two candidates who tied themselves most closely to Donald Trump split the other half of the vote. And, and what we know from polling is that the second favorite candidate 
Like if one of the two of them would have dropped out, I would have gotten more votes. Right? You would have. Oh, wow. Okay. I, I was the second favorite candidate of an overwhelming majority of both Chantel and Neil's supporters. And why do I bring this up? Because I think South Dakotans, although they clearly uh, support Donald Trump, they like his policies. And I did. I worked a lot with Donald Trump and with his Trump team in my first two years in the House. While there is clearly an affinity for Donald Trump, South Dakotans I, I, are, they also really believe in the Reagan optimism, uh, in the Reagan sort of logic-based value of conservatism. I think there is not as much populism within the South Dakota Republican primary electorate as you see in many states. Huh. Uh, I mean, you know, let's just be honest. I mean, you know, John Thune, Mike Rounds, Dusty Johnson, that's South Dakota's federal delegation. Those are pretty traditional conservatives. And I don't yeah. think it's any accident that that's who South Dakotans have chosen to represent them in D.C. What was the um, what was the raw sort of toughest moment in that first primary where we're sort of taking on um, a more um, Trump-like uh, candidate? Like, what were what were the issues that um, you? We're going to talk about some of the st- some of the votes, and you know the reason we're having you on, frankly, is because you're someone who's you know has survived has voted in a, in a uh, voted in a way in the last couple of years that uh, Donald Trump hasn't always liked and survived to tell the tale, right? So that's one of the reasons I'm interested in talking to you. But back in the primary, I'm just curious. Um, you know, you wrestled with that stuff. Um, obviously previously, um, maybe the question more is what did you learn from that? Like what, what were the issues that the Trump wing was like, ah, we got dusty on this and that you sort of were able to say, no, that, you know, I can easily overcome that. And I know that political scientists and journalists like to talk about these wings in part because these are concepts, these are frameworks that can help us understand what's going on in the electorate. Right. Yeah. But we all know it's not that rigid. Yeah, I, I yeah. mean, South Dakotans really, I mean, Republicans in South Dakota really, really support Donald Trump, but they also really, really support Christy Nome and John Thune. I mean, John Thune and, and Donald Trump have had a fair number of sort of public uh, difficulties. John Thune won his primary with almost 80% of the vote on Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah. So th- these are not so much wings as overlapping Venn diagrams of affinity, right? Uh, South Dakota Republicans really like John Thune and they really like Donald Trump. Even when those two uh, members of their family get into a spat, it doesn't stop the fact that they respect them both. So what was the key to that first primary? Uh, Honestly, ground game. You know, we had, uh, I've really, because of Alice Kundert, I've really tried to be involved with young people in South Dakota and have, have, I mean, I'm engaging with them because I think it's the right moral and ethical thing to do for the country. But a byproduct of that has been kind of this army of young people who have way more energy than I do at 45 and way more (laughs) energy than most uh, other political volunteers do. And frankly, we just outworked uh, Chantel and Neil. And I, I, I think that mattered. There were some outside super PACs that came in and tried to blow me apart. And uh, they spent a lot of money trying to convince people that I wasn't conservative, which South Dakotans rejected that allegation then, just as they've objected that allegation uh, in the last couple of weeks when a, a new set of you know, super PACs have shown up and tried to convince people that uh, I'm not conservative, despite the fact 
that by the numbers, uh, my voting record is, you know, quite a little bit more conservative than the average uh, House uh, Republican. Tell us about January 6th and uh, where you were and what you saw that day. Well, I was pretty pissed off the whole day. I mean, I know a lot of my colleagues were scared and I know a lot of them were sad. Uh, I felt those emotions, but honestly, anger was the dominant emotion for me throughout the day. I mean, this is not what we do. Throughout most of human experience, it has indeed been, uh, you know, the guy with uh, the largest army or uh, the strongest supporters who were able to seize power for themselves. But this American experiment rejected that. We don't believe that might makes right in this country. It doesn't matter how how tall you are uh, or how rich, you don't get any more votes than the other gal. And in that regard, uh, the relatively small number of people that converged on the Capitol who were intent on using disruption and in some cases violence to try to alter the course of American history, uh, that was uh, that was un-American and it made me angry. And I am still angry when I think about that. Where were you, where were you um, during the afternoon, sort of the 12 to 3 period when it was at its peak? I, uh, while we were calling the roll of states, I was on the House floor when uh, Arizona was objected to. Uh, the House and the Senate were to separate into their two chambers and to deliberate for two hours before returning to determine whether or not there was validity to the objection. Uh, the speaker had suggested that those people who were not already signed up to speak should probably try to watch the proceedings from their office. Uh, just, you know, try not to have too many people packed into a room given, co- given COVID. And so I began to make my way out uh, back to my office. I walked out of the chamber with Vice President Pence and talked to him, frankly, about the historic nature of the day. Huh. He was walking out of the back of the House chamber to go to the Senate, where he, as the president of the Senate, needed to preside over that two-hour debate. And I told him, Mr. Vice President, I know this has been an incredibly difficult couple of weeks for you. Uh, I just want to let you know that uh, I appreciate your service to this country. He seemed truly and emotionally touched by our conversation. Uh, if I did not know before then, it was very clear to me as a part of the conversation he and I were having how much, uh, how much of a, how much pressure the previous couple of weeks had placed on him. It was visible in his countenance. Um, he continued walking to the Senate. I was going to walk outside. I, I always walk outside to get to my office, and or almost always. And the, the police wouldn't let me go outside. They said, "Oh no, sir, it's really getting ugly out there." And in my mind, I was very dismissive because you were told that all the time. Oh, there's a, a crowd out there getting really, and it's never really been true before. And I said, really, I can't walk outside. And they said, no, you better take the tunnels. Huh. So I took the tunnels to get back to my office. And by the time I got back to my office, uh, things had gone from bad to much, much worse. And we were ordered to uh, find a secure location, shelter in place and to prepare to defend ourselves as needed. Where did that, that message came from the Capitol Police or from some other security uh, authority? Yes, Capitol Police. Just to quickly on, on Pence, that's fascinating that you had that conversation with him. Do you remember what he said? 
he uh, thanked me uh, for uh, my comments. He indicated that, uh, yes, this is a difficult time in American history. He, he didn't hold forth. I mean, he, he, was, he was pretty stoic. I think he was in... I think he was in business mode. I think he had a job to do, and he was uh, prepared to do it with the kind of dignity and the solemnity that the Constitution demanded. And uh, so he maybe only said, if I said a hundred words in that conversation, he might have only said 20 or 30. So they're telling you to shelter in place and be prepared to defend yourself. Um, that second part, I know, led a lot of members to... Um, look for weapons, you know, figure out how they were literally going to defend themselves. What did you do with that information? Where did, where did you shelter in place and how did you plan on defending yourself? Uh, if you took, did you take that seriously? That, that would, that was really something you would need to do. Uh, by that point, uh, I was taking it seriously. Uh, the sounds of the experience are very vivid to me. You could now hear the sounds of the crowd, which uh, clearly was getting angrier and at that, by that point, I could hear the, um, there were cries from my coworkers, not members of Congress, but people who work uh, in my congressional office. Yeah, people, were, people were scared, and of course, with good reason. And so those two sounds uh, made it very clear to me that this was, this was for real, this was not a drill. And Oh, a staff member, a coworker of mine uh, mentioned that they were scared for their lives. And I just said, well, uh, I just want to let you know, I mean, if anybody gets here to hurt us, uh, you know, they're not going to get to you until they get through me. And so we did find, uh, we found things that could be used as weapons. And, and we knew it wasn't very likely that they would come to the location where we were, uh, because why would anybody be looking uh, for me specifically? Had we had I left the house floor five minutes later, I would have been trapped on the house floor with my colleagues, and their lives were in a very real sense at risk in a way that mine was not. Now you don't know that in real time, and so I've taken you know as chief of staff to the governor. I mean, I ordered capital wide drills for an active shooter situation. Uh, you know, I, I took the training. Uh, I know that uh, if you can run, you should run. If you can't run, you should hide. And if you can't hide, then you should fight. And and I certainly was going to do everything I could to take that best, uh, that best, those recommendations and those best practices, and put them into practice if needed. Forgive me. I know this is kind of a strange question, but you you said that you can still remember what the what the crowd um, sounded like. That that's a very distinctive memory. What, what, what was it? How do, you, how do you describe it? Well, now, of course, everybody's seen so much footage uh, in the two years since. So I think we have a sense of what that crowd sounded like. Uh, but, you know, when, when, it's, when it's happening for real, and when there's also this, this bullhorn system in, on the Capitol complex, which I had never heard used before. And maybe they would use it if a tornado ever showed up. But I had never heard it, you know, it, it, during my first time, I never heard it used. And so to hear that bullhorn system come on and to tell everybody to take shelter, we are locked down, find a secure location and lock down, uh, that's another sound that I had never heard before. Got it. But and there's they, sort of, they, a, I mean, were, Ryan, yeah. there's sort of a fog of war component to all of this as well. Of course, yeah. 
what were you guys going to use to defend yourselves? I mean, what you're in an office. I mean, you don't have, I don't know if you're a gun owner, but obviously I don't believe you, you can't, um, well, I'll just ask it. I don't, I'm assuming you didn't have firearms, but maybe, maybe you did, but what was your plan? Yeah, I am a firearms owner. I'm very comfortable, uh, certainly in using a pistol and, and, and feel that I'm quite competent in its use, uh, but I did not have that with me. And so we were using improvised weapons. Uh, two of us uh, had uh, half uh, flagpoles, uh, you know, the flagpoles you can un, uh, unscrew. And, uh, you know, that, that I think would be a relatively effective weapon uh, if you needed it to be. All right, Congressman, let's go quickly through some of the the votes in the aftermath of January 6th that become so important in these primaries all over the country this year. Um, and uh, just so I ha- we have the listeners have the sequence right, um, you didn't vote on it. You, this far into our, our, our chronology, you haven't voted on anything yet on, on January 6th. That comes right. after. So everyone, and just you know, take us up to um, that vote, um, the post sheltering sheltering in place period, and this crucial vote about certifying the election. Yeah, and I had made a decision uh, certainly earlier than January sixth about what my decision uh, was going to be vis-a-vis certification. We'd released a video statement and a written statement to that effect earlier that day. And certainly that what happened on January 6th, the the violence didn't change my opinion about that. It seemed to change the mind of some senators. I don't know that it changed the mind of very many House members. I do anecdotally know of a couple or three who changed their mind as a result. But again, most uh, of the Republican conference uh, did uh, vote not to certify uh, the Arizona or Pennsylvania results. Uh, Was it Pennsylvania? Maybe Georgia. Um, And so... But it didn't change my opinion. So yeah, later in the day, very late at night, when we went to return to vote to certify, I, I did as I intended to do, which is uh, follow the the Constitution's instructions to me to be the witness of a ceremonial event rather than a super judge with a super veto. Did you have a lot of conversations and debate with your Republican colleagues who um, had a different point of view about that vote? Some, uh, there is lots and lots of uh, trying to change members' minds about the little things or the technical things in Congress, right? You know, particularly if you have a large, complex piece of legislation, and of course, you've got trade-offs, you know, on every page and and wins on every page. And so kind of trying to help them see the relative weighing of some of these trade-offs, that kind of happens a lot. When it comes to the big things, you're just not going to change anybody's minds. I mean, these are professionals. I mean, these, these are guys and gals who have spent decades thinking about when does life begin or to what extent does, uh, you know, peace through strength, how does, that, how does that get applied on the geopolitical stage? Yeah. And so you're just not going to take uh, a 20-year member of the House and through lobbying them or bullying them, uh, fundamentally change how they view the role of the Electoral Count Act or the Constitution. That by the point they, by the time they've decided, it's too late. It, the, yeah. the time to weigh in is way before that. Yeah, and and so we, I think we talked a lot about the practical impacts and what the fallout would look like, and how do we go here? But it wasn't like I mean, I didn't have anybody in my grill 
saying, you know, you better vote to throw these elector the electoral count of Georgia out. Um, I mean, it's just, that was not a, con the conversation was more, it, it didn't take that flavor. You didn't feel, did you feel pressure on, on it like some other Republicans did? Uh, not explicitly from members. I mean, I had the from, sense uh, that, that, that quite a few members were going to vote not to certify. And I think we all realize that in politics, uh, there are there is a safety in numbers. The safe the safe harbor is to follow the the gang. And right. you know, I right. So I do think lots of members, probably dozens, felt the implicit pressure of trying to cast the same votes that they knew a majority of their colleagues would. Got it. Because, right, you do that, and then you're not always going to be known as one of the 35 Republicans who didn't do that. <laughs> I want to talk about the Cheney as conference chair vote and the uh, independent commission vote. Whichever one you want to talk about first, I'm, I, I want to hear about that. Yeah, and, and so... I mean, I think we will also want to remember that with Cheney, I mean, her first no confidence vote, and frankly, the only one where there was actually a ballot taken, something like two thirds or three quarters of the conference stuck with her. Now, there was a vote, I don't know whether it was a month or six weeks later, I think she had continued to have uh, kind of put some more jagged edges on her rhetoric. And I think there was a broadening sense of the fact that, listen, you know, whether you agreed with Liz or not, the way she was prosecuting her case was going to make it harder and harder for her to lead the conference. Mm. And I don't, I don't criticize anybody for that decision. I mean, I do think there are some practical, you know, of course we want people, we want leaders to lead their team, but we also understand that there, that's not a one way street. I mean, one of the, uh, one of the top, the, one of the heads of the French revolution said, there go the people and I must follow them for I am their leader. Uh, and, and although I think we can largely reject that kind of idea of uh, pa passivity among our leaders, we do understand that you can't take a group of people where they don't want to go. And you need to have enough overlap of key principles to be able to get people to follow you. And so clearly yeah. Liz lost the confidence of the conference. Uh, you know, she couldn't be an effective leader of the conference today. Um, and that's, uh, I don't mean any disrespect to the conference or to Liz when I say that. Uh, now, with regard to the independent commission, I think- and just to be clear, and yeah. I, so f did, um, did you change, did, on the, did you vote the same way on those two votes or on the second vote, did, did you, had you basically decided that she, she couldn't be in leadership anymore? I didn't change my mind in the second one, yep. although, you know, I haven't talked a lot about that because it was an internal conference vote and there were no ballots taken and kind of who would know. But, uh, you know, a reporter asked me uh, in the aftermath of that vote, and and I'm not very good at keeping my mouth shut. <laughs> OK. And, on, and so let's let's move on to the to the commission vote. Sure. To me, it was a very clear dichotomy. I think some of my colleagues naively felt like, oh, if we kill an independent commission, then there will be no uh, Pelosi-involved tribunal. And that was utter balderdash. I mean, it was, it was naive of them. The reality is there was always going to be a group that was going to evaluate the, what happened on January 6th. The, the real question for Republicans was, what form should it take? And to me, I didn't want the I didn't want the proceeding we have had 
so far. I mean, I voted against this uh, Pelosi-appointed committee that has been meeting. I felt strongly then, and still do now, that we would have had a better set of fact-finders if we would have had an independent commission. No politicians, only security professionals, a deadline for them to complete their work by last December, and an even split of Democratic and Republican staffers. That would have gotten us much closer to the truth than the more partisan commission that we have had since. And so anytime, I mean, in my primary, a lot of people were confused about that. And they're like, we hate what's going on with this Pelosi committee. And, you know, we should have done something different. And I'm like, you're exactly right, which is why you agree with me. And you would have should have been supportive of the independent commission. That's what I supported. And frankly, I wish more of my Republican colleagues would have. Congressman, thank you very much for doing this. Congratulations on, on your race, and uh, hope we can uh, hope we can talk again soon. Ah, anytime. Thanks much. And that's our show. Our producers are Kara Tabor, Brooke Hayes, and I'd like to welcome our newest producer, Afra Abdullah. Adam Allington is our senior producer. Jenny Almont is our executive producer. Mike Zappler is Playbook's daily newsletter editor. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Ryan Lizza. Thanks for listening.